Today's scripture reading will be from Acts 9, 1-9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he may take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Sal, Sal, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Sal asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, Now get up and go into the city. You will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Sal stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Sal got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, once again we we pray. And our hearts are, are, are just so filled with gratitude and thankfulness and the desire to be more faithful and, and the desire to, to bring more glory to You through our life and our actions and, and through our words, but through our trust and through our obedience, Father, our, our trust that, that everything that You say is is true about us and about the world that we live in and about the future that looks like beautiful eternity. And we want that to be reflected in our lives. And I can think in this moment, Father, of no better way for us to show the beauty of of our salvation than, than to share good news and to share our faith, and to share our lives, and to share every blessing that has come into our lives in order for other people to be blessed, and as we've just sung, for Your name to be blessed. So we pray to be profound in the way that we know Your Scripture, and open to the ways that it shapes us into people who love, and are kind, and are gentle, and faithful, and, and, and producing beautiful blossoms, Father, in our life as You work in us. Lord, bless our, our study this morning of this passage about Saul, the road to Damascus by giving us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And, and bless us, Father, as a church as we take in all of its meaning and ponder the depths of, of these words that were first birthed in your heart. To this end, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, and we all say. I want to begin with a, a quote uh, from a guy by the name of, of Russell Moore. He writes, and I quote, The next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might currently be a misogynistic, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist. 
The next Charles Spurgeon might be managing an abortion clinic today. And the next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star this week. But the Spirit of God can turn all that around and seems to delight to do so. The new birth doesn't just transform lives, creating repentance and faith. It also provides new leadership to the church. End of quote. And that brings us uh, to two notable conversions in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10, we have Cornelius. You know the story of the first of the Gentile, Gentile converts. The Apostle Peter, and, and sometimes in our 21st century Western world, where there's a lot of, uh, at least there's, there's the attempt for a lot of egalitarianism, we don't really fully understand the emotional Grand Canyon that Peter as a Jew had to cross in order to get not just to Caesarea Maritima and to a, a, a Gentile city, but to a Gentile's home. And then to see the Spirit of God before His very eyes poured out on that Gentile family. And the conversion of Cornelius in Caesarea Maritima is a truly momentous occasion in the history of the world because now the Gospel is going worldwide to all people. The Gospel is not going to be a tribal religion. The Gospel is not going to be a national religion. The Gospel is going to be a movement of God into the hearts of every human being regardless of race or sex or nationality or IQ or net worth. The Gospel is for the entire world. And the story of Cornelius is, uh, is, is, is rich and it's, it's multi-layered, but there is at least one gigantic, tremendous lesson in it, and it's this. God desires for every human to hear the Gospel. Amen? Fact. Let's say that together. God desires for every human to hear the Gospel. Let's say it one more time. God desires for every human to hear the Gospel. Now that's Acts chapter 10. The other notable conversion takes place in Acts chapter 9, which comes right before Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. It is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Now for Luke, as he's writing Acts, the conversion of Saul, who will later become Paul or the Apostle Paul, is so important that he includes it three times in the book of Acts. He tells it as part of the narrative in Acts chapter 9, then he includes it in the story that Paul tells in two different places at the end of the book about his own conversion, chapter 22 and chapter 26. But Luke's beginning piece on Saul is, is not very flattering. Luke does not describe Saul in, in glowing terms. In Acts chapter 1, as, as Stephen, the first Christian to be martyred, is, is dying, there's a description when we're first introduced to Saul of holding the coats of the guys that are launching and chunking these gigantic stones and rocks on top of Stephen to the point that he can breathe no longer and dies. And in verse 1 of chapter 8, Luke says, Saul approved of killing him. And it seems that Stephen's death became that critical mass event that triggered something in Saul that sent him out on a rampage. In, in verse 3, just two verses later, Saul begins to what? Circle that word in your Bible or write it down on your outline. Saul begins to destroy the church. He goes from house to house. He's not just waiting for somebody to show up at the temple for, for church or at somebody's home. He's going house to house 
dragging off both men and women to put them in prison. And then at the beginning of chapter 9, the very next chapter, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Two things. I had you circle that word destroy in chapter 8 and verse 3, or to underline it or write it down on your outline. This is the only time that this word shows up in the New Testament. It does show up in the Old Testament. It's found in Psalm 80 and verse 13. And it's the description of a wild boar that is ravaging a garden or a, a, a vegetable garden. And it's this feral hog that's just going through as, as, a, as a beast, sort of rabbit, and just rooting and tearing everything up. That's the description that Luke has of Saul in chapter 8 and verse 3. Now we go to Luke, or Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. What does it mean to breathe out murderous threats? You know, when you breathe, it's an essential part of your life. Breathing is part of the foundation of your life. Breathing is maybe something that you don't think of very much, but, but breathing is what makes you alive and, and gives you a sense of identity. Murdering Christians, Luke is trying to tell us in Acts 9, is an essential part of the way that Paul began to think about his life. Breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Murdering disciples of Jesus and the name Saul probably synonymous in the minds of many people. And that happens. When we think of Martin Luther King Jr., what do we think of? We think of civil rights. When you think of John Wayne, what do you think of? You think of Westerns. When you think of Walt Disney, what do you think of? You think of, of Mickey Mouse. You think of cartoons. What Luke is helping us to see about this early part of, Luke's, uh, of, of Saul's life is that he is like a beast. Saul is portrayed as a beast. I don't know if the television show is still on, but a couple of years ago there was a show on television called The Wire. It was about the life in the projects of Baltimore, Maryland. And there's a villain in the, by the name of Omar who is so mean that people are terrified of him and they keep a vigilant eye for his approach. And whenever Omar starts coming down the streets, the kids start yelling, Omar's coming, Omar's coming, and everybody scatters for safety. Now before there was Omar clearing the streets of Baltimore, there was Saul of Tarsus and he's headed to Damascus. This guy that sees the murdering and the death of, of disciples and dragging men and women house to house back to Jerusalem in jail, that is the foundation and the identity of his life. He's going to wreak havoc on disciples of Jesus, men and women, and he's going to drag them back to Jerusalem to jail. Now before we go on, let's remind ourselves of a well-known verse that has become nearly cliche in the Western world. The verse that all of us know by heart, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God, what? So loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever, say it with me, believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's always good to be reminded that God loves human beings and He wants them in His eternity. The problem is that Saul doesn't know he's a beast until Saul encounters the Lord. 
And as they nearly completed the 150-mile journey from Damascus, uh, uh, from Jerusalem to Damascus, it's about noon, as we read about in chapter 22 and verse 6, there is suddenly this light from heaven that flashes around him. And it's the middle of the day, and it's a light that is so bright that it blinds him, and he falls to the ground like someone who's been defeated in battle. And as Saul is down there on the ground with his eyes closed, he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul discovers instantly that he has been working in reality against God. Now there's a great irony here that we see just a couple of chapters earlier, there is a fellow by the name of Gamaliel, a Pharisee, as we read in Acts chapter 5, named Gamaliel, who is a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people. He stood up in the Sanhedrin, and he ordered that the men, these are the apostles, be put outside for a little while, then addressing the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body of Jews in Jerusalem, as you know. He says, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting, say it with me, against God. Now, it sounds like pretty wise counsel, don't you think? And that's where the irony comes in, because who is Saul's mentor? Gamaliel. It was Gamaliel, and now... Gamaliel's words, and now Saul realizes that he's been fighting against God. And Christ says to him in Acts chapter 26, verse 14, as he's relating it later on in the book, he hears, why do you persecute me? And it's hard for you to kick against the, say it church, goads. Saul gets up off the ground, realizes that he is blind when he opens his eyes. And he has to be led by the hand to Damascus where he doesn't eat or drink anything for three days. This powerful, authoritative, confident, ambitious, dynamic individual Saul who leaves Jerusalem but he arrives in Damascus completely humbled. And while all of this is going on, a disciple by the name of Ananias receives a vision in which the Lord explains what has happened to Saul. And he is told to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street there in in Damascus and to find Saul when he gets there. And Ananias says, I beg your pardon. Are we talking about Saul of Tarsus? Are we talking about the Saul that caused havoc in Jerusalem and now is coming here to do the same thing in Damascus? Are we talking about the same Saul? And the Lord says, go. Saul is the chosen instrument of mine to proclaim the message of the gospel to all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. And he must see, I will show him how much he will suffer for the kingdom. And Ananias goes and he finds Saul just as God told him in the vision. And Saul becomes a disciple of Jesus. 
And in beginning in verse 17, placing his hands on Saul, he, Ananias, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And the most amazing thing happened. The one who was destroying the church, begins to build the church in Damascus. And in another twist of irony, the one who had gone to Damascus with the power and the authority to go house to house and drag men and women back to Jerusalem in chains as his prisoner, he is now the target for the problems. There's a contract that's put out on Saul's life. And he escapes because he hears about it. Some of the people that have begun to love Saul help him by lowering him a basket in the opening of the city wall. And he goes to Jerusalem but he's received coolly. You know, the last time they saw his dust as he was leaving, he was going to do some terrible, horrible, vicious, mean things. And now he comes back and he says, I'm one of you. Now, they, they had seen Get Smart. They knew what double agents were. And so no one trusts Saul yet. They don't believe that he's really a disciple. You know what he's doing? He's faking it. He wants to find out people who are, who are confessing that they're disciples of Jesus so then he can nail them. He's a double agent. But Barnabas comes and takes him by the hand. And what he does in, in taking him by the hand and standing beside him when nobody else will stand beside Saul and taking him and putting his own reputation on the line, making a sacrifice of his own integrity, is that he begins to fellowship. That's what it means to fellowship. He fellowships Saul. He takes him by the hand, takes him to the apostles, vouches for him by putting his name on the line. And then we read, as Paul would say it later on in Galatians chapter 1, the man who had formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they did what? Praise God because of me. It's an incredible story. Lots of things that we could talk about. Let me give you three thoughts on conversion. Sometimes we don't appreciate the power of the gospel. Sometimes we don't appreciate the power of the gospel. That's something we have to reflect on. That's why these stories are in the Bible. For us to be able to reflect on the fact that men like Saul, the gospel impacted their heart in such a way that in such a violent way that they completely changed gears and changed directions 180 degrees. And you know what the lesson is? The message is never sell the gospel short. Who would have ever placed Saul high on the list of candidates for the gospel? Who would have said, you know what, Saul, most receptive guy to the gospel in Jerusalem. He was the guy that was happy when Stephen was beaten into the ground with stones and rocks. He was the guy that was pleased and approving of it. He thought this was a pretty good deal to see that Stephen had been killed. Personally got involved in the terrorism against the church. His whole life centered on the destruction of the church. He is the one that is described as the wild beast ravaging a vineyard, and yet he responds to the gospel. Luke, throughout Acts, shows that there is pushback and there is resistance to the growth of the church. Sometimes on the outside, sometimes on the inside. But guess what? The church doesn't stop growing. Why? Because people recognize the power of the cross in the gospel. And they recognized, because they were seeing it every day, 
anybody could respond to the gospel, that no one was outside the power of the gospel. The second thing is never forget, and this is the reason that we don't sell the gospel short, we never forget that God is present in the process. Aren't you just sort of, when you think about it, aren't you kind of amazed that it's Saul? Saul is as far from God and God's will as anyone could be, and yet what does God do? He goes after him. He goes after the one that's destroying the church. And think for a moment when when Saul says, you know, when I saw that light and I realized I was persecuting Christ. And he said to me, it's hard to kick against the goads. Think about the goads. I mean, what is a goad? First of all, right? A goad is that thing you use to get the, the, the dumb beast to go the direction you want it to go. A goad is what you do to drive oxen, to drive cattle, to drive, to drive animals in the direction that you want them to go. And, and Jesus says to him, why are you kicking against those goads? Go the direction. And think for a moment about what those goads might have been. Saul knew about the miracles. Why are there miracles in the Bible? To confirm the Word, to bring attention to Jesus, to show that He has the power to, to, um, to, to forgive sins. And because God and, 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 and God the Son, Christ, wants to bring help and, 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 and to bless people, you know, He did these miracles for no other reason than to cure people at times. But you know what else the miracles were supposed to do? Bring repentance. Jesus Himself said, What do you Bethsaida and what do you Chorazin? If the miracles that had been done in you had been done in Sodom and Tyre, they would have what? Repented. And be here to this very day. There were the miracles that He saw Stephen. He was approving of His death. But He heard what Stephen said, saw the manner in which Stephen died, not unlike the way the Roman centurion saw the Christ die on the cross. Perhaps God was using his doubts and his conscience. He is a rabbi, he is a teacher. What happens when he stands up in synagogue and begins to read as Saul the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and gets to, Thou shalt not kill. And then there are people and God's Spirit, John 16, verse 8, God will send His Spirit in order to, to convict people of sin and righteousness and judgment. Never forget that God is present in the process. And number three, never underestimate the human component. The place that you and I, as disciples of Jesus, play in all of this. God uses humans as a part of the conversion process. The Christ appears to Saul, but God still uses Ananias. Barnabas was a part of that process too. Barnabas was needed too. Your life sometimes is the only Bible that people will read. And when you live your life as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, your changed life is hard to debate. And sometimes there are just so many rotten things that happen in the world that you just don't believe that good things can happen unless there are people who follow the Christ who make that difference. Huffington Post, I'll close with two stories. Huffington Post put out a little story not too long ago about a church in Honolulu called the Blue Water Mission. They also started what they call a justice restaurant where they hire people out of prison and off the streets to work it to try to help them find what 
normalcy is again as they share with them the gospel and bring them into relationship with the Christ. The article and then a YouTube video that came out afterwards focused on a woman by the name of Mary Nelson who grew up in New York City. Mother commits suicide at the age of 14. She's all alone and she begins the life as a prostitute. By the time she's 18, she hears a rumor that if you go to Hawaii, the, uh, the, the people, your clients, don't beat you the way that they do in New York City. So at 18, she goes to Hawaii, begins the life as a prostitute there, and continues until nearly the age of 50, making a ton of money, living in condos, jewelry, has all of this stuff. But then she begins to encounter towards that last year of her life as a prostitute some people that were going out to the street corners and just saying, you know, life doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to be objectified by men or whoever else. You, and she was beginning to feel this sense of loneliness. I mean, the life of a prostitute was beginning to weigh on her heart and soul and mind like an anvil. And she was beginning to wake up in the middle of the night and in the morning, she says, feeling empty. And she would just bawl and cry and cry. But every time she saw the Jesus people coming, she'd run away. But she would say, don't give up on me. Don't give up on me. And at the end of a year of them going every week and saying, Mary, it doesn't have to be this way, she went with them. And she gave up that lifestyle. And they put her to work. And because she didn't want to see anybody publicly, she just wanted for six months just to wash dishes. And they loved her. She made a lot of mistakes. But they loved her. And she gave her life to Jesus. Mary Nelson, prostitute for 40 years. Now, this year, she's taken a trip with her church to the Philippines to talk to women on the streets about hope. That there might be just a little bit of hope, a little bit of love in this world that might change your life. Prostitutes on the streets of the Philippines. She says, there are people out there who really want to help and you've got to believe. Just like you went out there and took a chance on the streets, you've got to take a chance on this as well. Because of people saying and showing and administering and demonstrating and manifesting Love. A little bit closer to home. Miguel is a member of a Church of Christ up in Fort Worth, Texas. Really, really rough background. Became a Christian, growing in his faith, very, very dedicated. But the problem is, because of his rough background and his history, sometimes the thing you do in your past catches up with you. And in his case, it was trying to catch up on his child support. Didn't quite get caught up in time. Ended up spending three days in jail. On his first day in jail, he asked for a Bible. No one paid any attention to him, wouldn't give him a Bible. In fact, laughed at him and said, we're not going to give you anything like that in here. You don't need a Bible. Later in the day, they moved him to the second floor into another cell. And while he's there, he asked the guards for a Bible. They laugh at him again, say, you know, you don't need a Bible. Third time on that same day, they move him to the third floor to a different cell. He asked the prisoners, he asked the guards, I, I just like a Bible in Spanish. Do you have a Bible in Spanish? And they laugh at him and they make fun of him and they say there's just no way. And by this time, he's alone in the cell by himself. He's a little bit discouraged. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to lay down. I'm going to, I'm going to rest a little bit. And he lays down. And he feels something under the mattress on his bed. Lifts it up. Two Bibles. Spanish and English. And he takes those two Bibles. And for the next two days before he is... You know, the bail is paid and he's, he's brought out of, of jail. 
he gets a, a prison ministry started in that jail in Tarrant County, leading to the conversion of one of the inmates. Miguel would tell you that God put those Bibles there because those inmates needed the Gospel. And although we might think of hardened people and, and people of the streets, people that don't think the way we do have our own our, our value system, that don't admire things the same vein that we do, as being recipients and, and candidates and embracers of the Gospel, God sees them as such. And Miguel says, God, God wanted those people to hear the Gospel. And God put those Bibles under that mattress. The Gospel just changes everything, folks. It just changes everything. And there is no one who is outside the touch, the reach, the power, the impact of the love that is a historical fact that was demonstrated when Jesus gave up His life on the cross after He suffered and suffered and suffered and was ridiculed and was mocked and was spat upon. Paul tells us that He took our sins upon Himself in love in order for us to give His righteousness. Which means that God brings us into eternity, beginning today. Now Ben's going to lead us in a song right now, and we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. Maybe you've been struggling with that decision. I'm here to tell you that the, 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 the gospel changes everything. Experiencing the love of God changes everything. Experiencing the kindness of God toward you and the cleansing of, of your conscience. And, and, and the palpable hope that He sticks in your heart and deep down even farther than your heart, sticks it down in your soul, changes the way that you think about life and about other people. And if you want to hear about how the Gospel changes your life personally. These shepherds are going to be down here at the front. They would love for you to come down and talk to, to you, uh, talk to them about it. And for the rest of us who have been impacted by the Gospel and glory in the Gospel, let's stand and praise God. Ha!